Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Hi everyone, so I'm Laura Mark and I run the Baylight Foundation at Walmer Yard, uh, which is a charity all about kind of uh, architectural experience. Uh, but I've also done my fair kind of bit of teaching, um, I've done crits at Bartlett and Greenwich and various places and I, um, for the last year I've been teaching the dissertation unit at Birmingham, so I kind of have a bit of a background in teaching architecture and I studied architecture and actually studied in a pretty radical course uh, at the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales where we kind of learn architecture in a quite a different way. So I've got a bit of a background in kind of different ways of preparing uh, students for practice. Um, but I'll introduce our speakers here tonight. So we've got a kind of quite a mix, uh, but mainly from the academic side. So uh, our one lonely practitioner is going to have to bite his corner. Um, so... First up, we've got uh, Jeremy Till, who is the head at Central St. Martins, uh, but he's also held kind of headships and deanships at the Uni of Westminster and back in Sheffield. Uh, we've also got Ava French, who um, is the new director of the AA. Um, has come, probably going to give us a bit more of an international kind of stance. Um, and then we've got Harriet Harris, uh, who we should all give a massive congrats to, because uh, she's just been appointed Dean at Pratt, uh, but she's currently at the RCA. <laughs> I don't know where she is. <laughs> ah, <she's there. laughs> we kind of lost them all. <laughs> so wave as you go. Um, and then we've also got John, uh, John McKelgan, who is a representative from Practice, and he's from Roger Sturk Harbour and Partners. Um, so this debate uh, is going to talk about kind of whether students are prepared for practice by their universities. Um, I guess kind of thinking back a few years, I was working on the AJ uh, back in 2015 when like this kind of kind of came about again where um, actually we were talking about students and practice and uh, the editor at the time, Rory Olchaito, had a huge Twitter argument with a practitioner who uh, believed that our, um, our universities were not preparing students and they should be kind of churning out these kind of oven-ready uh, graduates. And it became this kind of embroiled argument where uh, this practitioner was then taken to the Bartlett show and uh, made to kind of go around while we narrated what he was doing and his comments. Um, and, yeah, it's like four years later and this debate still hasn't changed. We're still having it. Uh, but I think, I guess I'm going to put out a few questions that maybe our kind of people are going to respond to. Um, so, kind of, do you think architecture schools should be preparing students for practice is one of them? Um, or is that not their duty you know, are they just prepare, preparing them with the skills that then the practices have a duty to kind of teach students as well? Um, and is there really a kind of chasm between architecture and practice? Or are we just all complaining about something that's not there? Um, but now I'm, I'm going to open it up and kind of give all of our speakers kind of two to three minutes. Um, and then we'll kind of open it up to the floor and everyone else can chip in. Uh, so... I'm going to get Jeremy to go first because he's prepared a speech and everything. <laughs> so, um, do you want this? If you want, or you can sit down, whatever you want. <laughs> okay. So I was looking at the, um, the way these things are constructed and I got a really bad vibe that it was like the battle of ideas, which for those of you who don't know the battle of ideas is run by 
a bunch of um, right-wing libertarians who set binary problems and then get in on their side. And the most famous of those is now uh, Claire Fox, who's part of the Brexit Party. So I, I wasn't sure that was a good, a good starting point for a debate, the, the binary thing. So I thought I'd be a contrarian as well and say something which, uh, I just to throw it out there, which is far from there being a chasm between practice and education, actually they're much too similar. In as much as, although at the far extremes of speculation, people might get annoyed by some of the production from architecture schools, the farthest extremes of that speculation is actually dominated by a certain set of values and principles which abide both within practice and within education. So for those of you who read my work, you know what I'm about to say because those principles are, are laid out in my work. But the principles are those that architectural production is dominated by the production of images. The picture becomes the sole source of, of priority within both schools but also within the architectural media. That the sole thing which is, is privileged is the production of buildings over the production of the process of buildings. That there's a fixation on sacrifice in both architectural education through the crit and through overwork, but then that's carried through within the competition and the procurement system, that there's underlying sexism in both parts of the, of, 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 of the profession and academia. If I say Sarah, my partner, was only the second ever professor of architecture in the country, and if you look at what Part W is doing in relation to the gold medal, then you can see underlying sexism. And I could go on. The, the idea of the individual as the sole force of, of genius, the person who produces a building, is, is privileged in both academia and in practice. So I could go on and on, but there's a whole set of things which I would say the overarching value system of both the profession and of education are surprisingly similar. Not just surprising, of course they're similar because that is how the history of architecture and the cult of architecture is described. So that the problem is not the chasm between the two, but actually shifting what that value system might be. And I would say just at the moment there's an amazing opportunity to shift that debate. A year ago, I wrote to Ben Derbyshire and I said, why don't the RIBA have an ethics commission? He amazingly listened to my email and he set up an ethics and sustainability commission, which produced, under I think some brilliant chairing of Peter O'Born, a statement, which I'm going to read. And this was accepted by the RIBA. We assert the Institute's unequivocal commitment to placing public interest, social purpose, ethics, and sustainable development at the heart of its activities. Which is, the council signed up to this. So this seems to me an amazing moment for the so-called chasm to be, to be brokered, not in relation to the value systems I talked about, but in relation to some of the issues we're facing in relation to climate emergency and social injustice, that actually the school and the profession could come around around a joint thing, which luckily the RIBA have written for us, and which I'm sure would be seen as an establishment kind of um, mole, but I think is one of the most powerful statements written in architecture recently. Thank you. Thank Thanks, Jeremy. Some great points there that I think we'll come back to in the debate later on. Uh, so next up, Harriet, do you want to give us your... Okay, I wrote some notes. Um, well, firstly, thank you for inviting me. And I agree with Jeremy wholeheartedly about this really rather tedious framing of, of the argument about being um, some sort of partitioning between education and practice. But I suppose in response to many of the points that I wanted to make that Jeremy more possibly eloquently has, um, I'd like to put forward that architecture education is, is really suffering at the moment. It is in crisis. Um, for those of you following its fortunes, you'll have noticed that quite recently the government has decided to reduce um, fee fund or reduce the fee obligations on students, which is a good thing, they shouldn't be paying anything at all, by £2,000. But the implications of this are that universities are expected to make up the shortfall. 
The only way they can do this is by cutting staff or overcrowding studios. Um, so there are a number of things that are bearing down on architecture education that will in many ways compromise what anyone is trying to do beyond aesthetics and beyond relevance to professional practice. But I also think that this constant blaming of education does get a bit tedious, and I'm not entirely convinced practice necessarily blames education for much. Education, if you like, is a rather troubled love child of so many epistemologies, because architecture isn't really a discipline, is it? It's a bit of social sciences, it's a bit of humanities, um, it's got all these um, epistemological influences, which in many ways make it quite an angry and upset love child, unable to really forge a particular path towards any one vocation. Um, but I also think that when we're asked to prepare students for practice, there are a few things we need to challenge. Well, if we say preparing for practice as is, then that means preparing young people to be underpaid or unpaid. It means preparing them to, if they're female, um, to be paid less. Um, it means preparing them for likely discrimination if they're BAME or if they're LGBTQ. It also means um, preparing them for um, a very perilous profession, one that has seen its fee income drop by 15% in the last three years. Um, so is that really an ethical position for schools? Is it really right to prepare young people for an industry that seems to be on the wane? And I would argue not. I do not think that education should, at any point, provide free and cheap labour like some kind of puppy mill. I do not think education should graduate, graduate compliant workers who are willing to accept poor paying conditions. Neither do I think should education be, if you like, willing to perpetuate the inequalities that practice is struggling from, but in fact challenge students to do something about it. Um, I think that what we have, as Jeremy rightly said, is an opportunity. And I say this as someone who's just, in a, in a kind of semi-terrified way, taken on a leadership role in an international institution, um, having mainly spent two weeks um, not sleeping much and really worrying about what this might mean in terms of the, the scale of responsibility in what is perceived to be quite a broken system where the cards are stacked against me being effective or in any ways, um, if you like, at odds with the broader capitalist marketing, marketing agenda of the um, universities or even any institution's um, agenda. And I wonder if, truthfully, I have much agency within this role. And the only way I can imagine that I might have agency is if I open up that leadership as a collaborative project, make it a co-design strategy that can challenge some of education's lasting and enduring problems, that it needs to be decolonized, that the diversity at leadership levels needs to be addressed, that the privatization by stealth, um, certainly in the UK, but more explicitly in the US, is challenged. We, we kind of come up with some kind of political resistance to what is actually happening. Um, and of course, this issue around affordability, um, as you probably know from what I've written about and my political positioning, I am deeply concerned about the fact that higher education charges fees in this country as one of the richest nations in the world. Um, if you look at what the financial forecasters are saying, all of that debt that the students are taking on, the moment a student takes out a loan, that becomes an asset for the person who's lent it to them. And that asset will become, much like the banking crisis, a public liability that we will be expected to bail out at some point in the future. 75% of people taking on student debt at the moment have no hope of ever paying that money back. And that will come onto the shoulders of the taxpayer. So it's either pay now, make education free and affordable, and make it by implication inclusive, or pay later to some private firm to which the whole government has sold off all of that debt and pay a premium at 6% interest um, on that original loan. And I think this is where practice and our education can really converge. If our practices are precarious, then let's stop asking students to serve practice as is. Let's asking them to reimagine different forms of practice. And while they're doing it, reimagine new forms of education, new inclusive models of engagement with communities, um, and new ways of mounting a political protest to systems that will not only destroy our own industry, but the whole of our education sector as well. Thank you. Thanks, Harriet. John, do you want to go next? I'll give it a shot. Um, I think I agree with many of the points that have already been raised. When I was coming here tonight, I was thinking about the amount of time that we all spend in, in education, and I think, I think we probably all agree it's a little bit antiquated. We've all... I don't know if you all, all had that conversation with somebody saying, oh, I've just finished my degree 
so you're an architect now? No, 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 then I need to do my part two. And then you go back to college, you do another two years, probably done some work experience in the meantime, or hopefully. Um, and then you finish that, and you know, auntie or uncle or whoever it is down the road. Oh, so you're an architect now? Well, no, now I need to do my part three. What, what's that? Oh, don't, don't worry about it. It's just some really boring shit set of exams that I need to do before I can use the term of the word architect. Um, and so I think, on reflection, I think we probably spend a little bit too much time in education um, just thinking about, you know, the, let's say the, the five years full-time, the, the years out, et cetera, et cetera, uh, those of us that didn't go straight into the, into the, the correct degree first time around a little bit more time. Um, and the academic year is approximately 33 weeks. For some schools, that's 66 days. Uh, so if you do the maths, it's not actually kind of five slash seven years. You could kind of do it in, in three years. I'm not saying that you should, but you could seriously compress the course um, I went from Canterbury to the Bartlett um, and I was absolutely horrified when I got to the Bartlett at just how hard people worked and it picks up on the point that, that Jeremy made about you know the kind of going probably too far um, overwork underpaid sort of sort of aesthetic or, or, or approach to life uh, level of love and commitment for your project which is above and beyond any, anything else um, and I thought well that okay fair enough it, this is the this is a particular environment I'm in now and that's the way I need to perform um, and then you go to practice and you see another step change, or at least I did in, 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 my, in, my, um, in my route. And so on reflection, you kind of think, well, you know, maybe those years could be a little bit more critical. Maybe, the, maybe we, could, we could compress them or maybe the, the relationship or, or, or what you're actually learning and the critical thinking about that you're doing when you're pontificating about a site for three or four months at a time rather than actually getting on with it and testing some ideas, even if it's just to prove that they're failed ideas and you need to move on. Um, I think that's something that we could look at. Um, I mean, there's the, the, the way apprenticeship is at the moment, or the way the, the way the educational system came around as we have at the moment was was a, a movement away from old apprenticeships where people got exploited, um, working in in architects of, offices of well-established architects, not getting paid very much, and, and eventually learning enough to do their exams. And so the kind of the slightly antiquated part one, two, and three that we have now came about um, almost 100 years ago. And, and so I think it's time to move on from that. Having said that, there are schools, uh, the Bartlett's looking at a part one apprenticeship, uh, Oxford Brooks are already doing a part two apprenticeship, which includes your part two and your part three. Um, so, and actually, Laura mentioned earlier, she did at, at uh, Centre for Alternative Technology, her part two as a kind of a part-time role. Um, and I think what we need is a mixture. I think we need a mixture of time to study and time to take yourself out of the world and have that critical appraisal, uh, but also we kind of need to get on with it a little bit. Um, I think if you if you look at some of the degree shows, which are a degree and diploma shows, which are just about to open, um, and I'm sure some of the academics here tonight would say that, that you know, particularly in your masters, taking time out from life, work experience, pressure, etc., is essential in the fuller forming of oneself as an intellectual being. And you look at some of these shows, and you, think, you know, I'm really struggling to tell the difference between one student and the next because the agenda by the, by the professor is so strong and so heavily driven that, that, that people are being pushed in, in a very particular direction. But you know, maybe that's their own planner, maybe that's their own client, maybe that's their own set of um, restrictions that they need to overcome in order to be, in order to be heard. Um, and then finally, just to close, I mean, I think you look at the cost of education, Average cost, I think, of degrees is about £50,000 at the moment. Getting out a diploma, it's, it's closer to 100000 which is really tragic for a, um, for a profession where, if you're lucky, the, the opening salary could be 25 or 30. Um, and if you look at what a living salary is um, in London, that's kind of where you are. And then, um, as Harriet said, you, you're effectively in, in hock to somebody. We don't know who, for how long. Um, and I'm glad we have Russell here tonight, because Russell might remind us um, as he does frequently about the falling fees in, in a profession where people are continuing to undercut each other. So this starts at college, as Jeremy said, and it carries on all the way through. And um, I think we're at serious breaking point. And if, if I was to be leaving school today with my shit fees, is, uh, shit fees, sorry, shit grades, there's absolutely no way I could be an architect. And maybe that's a good thing, but I, I'd be a little bit sad about it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, John. So we've had the kind of shit fees, we've had uh, high 
kind of costs of education and we've had long uh, long qualification routes. So now, Eva, what are you going to bring? Uh, stay over there if you want, it's fine. No, no, it's okay. Um, how, how many of you is an architect? Like, just the showing hands. How many of you is a practicing architect? How many of you is an architect who's not a practicing architect? Where, where did you get that from? No, no, that's, so, so just a question. We saw a raise of hands. Just, you, if, I mean, that's, a, that's part of the question. So I would like to ask, why do you think that you're an architect who's not a practicing architect? I have kids, I have kids. Okay. You know. It's like, who, who are you? Um, I'm, I'm saying this because I think the question has a trap in it, obviously. Is that today, I, I, I just before coming here, the graphic designer at the AA told me that we could not put the word architect in our tote bags because Riva might get offended. Or that, in fact, we would get into trouble if you put that actually maybe in the ID card. Um, and that made me think about... Um, where have we arrived? The fact that to call ourselves an architect, I come from the US context, and obviously the AIA and NCARP and many other institutions similarly to the UK are the guardians of a particular understanding of what it means to be a practicing architect, right? So it's a bar, this is not a lecture. So I'm going to tell you about my life that this is what people actually do in a bar. Um, I, I did my five years of architectural training in a polytechnic university and the day that was the 12th of February of 2003. I finished my studies and that very same moment I became an architect. The day after I went to the Royal College of Architects or the COAC and I was an architect who could practice, who could sign the drawings and who could start building. The situation in which we find ourselves within the UK or actually other uh, educational contexts in the US is a strange one. But it's a reasonable one. Architects at some point were to be responsible for buildings as a matter of social liability. If a building falls down, someone needs to be responsible. And the state tried to actually produce structures of, uh, if you want, accountability that would make sure that that what was being produced within an educational environment would make buildings safe for everyone. Now, when we live in a context in which the regulatory system, the legal system, actually allows us to make sure that before one puts a building up, that building is safe, we need to start questioning what do those professional bodies do for us? And are they needed? And so, how do we establish our relationships with them? So, for someone who's actually a professional architect, a practicing architect, um, who has made her uh, attempts of building a few years ago, before finally I decided that being an architect in the 21st century was not just about making buildings and practicing through actually the making of edifices of matter, but a different kind of buildings. So I went to unlearn a bit more, and then I engaged with different pedagogical frameworks um, in the US and so on and so forth, until I started practicing differently, where one does not only make buildings with bricks, but one makes buildings with ideas, with business models, with legal models, and with many other things that in fact truly shape the way in which we build our cities, our communities, our public space, and in fact, the ways in which we live together. Why do we keep in defining and framing and reducing the role of the architect to that one that actually just puts one piece of matter next to another one? I think that's extremely problematic. And ultimately what I think is very, if you want, um, interesting about this conversation today is that I actually do think that there is a clear difference between practice and, and education. And one of them is that practice is a space that deals with reality, that deals with, with many of those spaces of regulation, that deals with space that responds. And educational environments deal with that process of learning, but also with that space of redefinition. 
One of, of my students, uh, uh, through a series of debates that we had this year, trying to understand what is that DAA is and does, and has been doing for more than 100 years, that is try to somehow expand that space of practice. Students said, we do not respond to architecture as practice, we try to expand that form of practice. And, and to actually have one of your students have very clearly uh, articulate what is that that the school does and has been doing since 1847 when actually a bunch of students who were 18 and 23 years old decided that they didn't want to follow the apprentice system because that was in essence a system that was corrupt, that was perpetuating the existing structures of power and were interested in actually producing an entire system in which new things could be possible. That's why a school like the AA or an association was born. And as a school, we try to keep on doing the same. Because I do think that architecture as a discipline, architecture as a form of practice, it is that endeavor. And I think we all more or less agree in this room. And if not, this is the time to ask for the word and start disagreeing. Because ultimately, I think is that what makes rooms like this interesting. And I was asking, where is Riva? No? Where are the ones who actually might disagree? I think that at the end of the day, uh, we might ultimately, and we have already had many conversations in which we don't disagree much. And the question here is, where is the people who disagrees? So if, if so, <laughs> there we go. So, well, let's let Peter come in there if he's going to disagree. Come on. There is one reason why architecture uh, is, uh, exists as it is, and that is because it wants to reduce its exposure to um, litigation and it wants to maximize its profit. Straightforward. It's a thing that you daren't accept. That's what every practicing architect wants to do, is to make a profit. Profit, profit, profit is the issue, right? I mean, and hang on a minute. <laughs> the issue... And, Certainly in terms of education is that education is entirely, um, uh, how, how can I say this, um, has entirely misappropriated the, um, the issues in front of it, primarily because, and this is, I think, particularly the case with respect to the AA, which is a kind of anachronism, it still holds on to its, um, its obsession with a kind of modernist single narrative. It cannot come to terms with the idea that the world has changed. Um, it constantly wants to reproduce um, the genius architect. And so do many other schools of architecture. This is, this is gone a long time ago. You say that architecture is disintegrating from the position of um, you know, um, a very successful practice in which you're charging, I presume, five to six percent on a large capital project over 12 million pounds and everybody can calculate what the fucking fees are on that man you know that is like three quarters of a million pounds and upwards what do you do with this money you know if you're not uh, if you're complaining about the amount of fees you get what the hell happens to it hmm? yeah you were so the the, the, the issue of fees well, the cost of education, that's another issue. How much do you pay towards the cost of education of the people you employ? We pay no, you pay nothing. What you do is you, expect, is you expect people to enter the education system, pay through the fucking nose, and then you will take the best among them and allow them to work for you. And you pay them at a very low, low rate because you, what you're saying is we're, we're the best in class and therefore you can... You, you can, um, you know, support yourself in a lower amount of money. So what I hear from you is, you know, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Do you um, sorry, just because you've got such great facts there about what we do in our practice. Can I just say... Tell us what the facts are instead of bullshitting. Tell us what it is. Okay, can I tell you what it is? We do look after our students. We often pay their fees. We have several bursaries across the country where we try and support students who are trying to pay the very expensive fees now. We don't go on about it because we don't do it to get credit. But when somebody attacks me for the hypocrisy, I'm going to use that just to explain, actually, we do invest in some of our students. And we don't say that you have to earn less because we're top of the shop. We've never said that. Well, thanks very much. You're brilliant. Your point's really well made. I appreciate it. 
personal about particular practices here and not really touching on the issues around architectural education. So I think I'd like to take it back to kind of what we actually mean about kind of preparing students for practice. Like Harriet picked up on what really is that. So maybe someone wants to pick up on that point and we move away from picking on particular practices for their, what they do. Does someone want to add anything? to? Go for it. I will. I mean, I think John's point earlier was slightly different to what you were saying, Kevin. It just, I will come back to what you were saying, Lauren. But um, I think John's point about the cost of practice is a challenge. And I think um, cost of education, sorry. Um, and and I, if I go back to my own education, um, obviously wasn't uh, well educated making slip ups like that. But um, <laughs> the state paid for our education, doesn't anymore. And I think when the state was paying our education, um, we felt that you know, you, 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 you were coming out of college and having to get into a practice and work very hard to get into a practice because there weren't many jobs around. That was around about 91, 92. And I think when there's not an awful lot of work out there and an awful lot of students, the difference becomes a little bit more uh, uh, noticeable. But kind of want to, to, to sort of go back to what Jeremy said and seeing how, how the differences might not be that different at all because there's issues that are um, very much clear problems with education and with practice that we're all facing and that are all very, very similar and that is diversity, race, gender and so on. But it's also about a changing capitalist system, which it is about profit. Kevin's right on that. And I, and, and, and I, and I wonder if Jeremy's actually closer to the, the truth here in terms of that there, there are similarities rather than big differences. So maybe going back to, to, to you, Harry, I don't know if I'm answering some of your, your points, but... Well, I wish, I wish this was about answers, actually, this evening. Um, I think the critique side of things is very easy for all of us. I think that's one of the great skills that one can have after an architectural education is a very rarefied critical mind, um, very capable of dissembling everything we do, whether we're practitioners or educators, and of course fighting against the infrastructure that is, if you like, the capitalist framework under which we all labour. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, because it's times like this I'm reminded that architecture was once a public service. The majority of architects until the 1970s in this country were working for local planning authorities, working on social housing projects, on clinics, on schools, and then through a massive shift in politics, suddenly found themselves, in many ways, asked to reevaluate their ethics in order to pay their mortgage or buy their food or heat their house. I don't think profit, by definition, is a negative thing. We have to find ways to survive. Um, profits as well can be invested in positive ways back into things. It's not about, you know, profit isn't, for me, a resource. Well, this is the question. It's true. Yeah, you're right. Well, this is it. No, but we all, I think we're all wage earners. I think that, you know, I'm talking about the importance of having a political strategy. So, Kevin, what I'd really like to know, sorry, this is Kevin Rowbottom. He wrote some fantastic books, and I used to read them when I was a student, in case you're wondering. But I just want to say, Kevin... Okay, but my point is, I would like to offer, invite you to speak to a point about what you think the solution is. So if these are the problems we're confronting and we're all products of the corrupt system... Yeah. Um, the 
Would anyone else like to talk to Kevin tonight? Um, we have a direct line. Um, you know, when, when I received this incredible invitation, the first thing that I realized is um, that in the fall this year, uh, we actually had a series of lectures organized by students at the AA that I think everyone knows that probably is not the school that one might identify more with the idea of practice by a group of students who were concerned about what that means today and how one actually might articulate it. And so knowing that this is an intense week within the school, I actually I, I wrote an email to two of them to say if they actually would love to come here to speak in my behalf in the case I was not able to make it. And I think it's, it's important to maybe not to bring the voices that might be already unable to speak to the future, but to really try to bring some voices that can take us into a future that we might not have yet imagined. Um, and, and with this, I would like to pass the microphone and put someone in the spot, uh, that is uh, Tobias. So. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I think, Kevin, actually we had um, a discussion in the Graduate Gallery uh, a year ago, where you were presenting with David Green, um, also trying to kind of ask questions in the search for a new director of what we as students... And I... I think, we, I think you should give um, Tobias a chance to speak and so not butt in, and then we can address the issues. Just, just let him go. <laughs> but I think you had a relevant point, um, and um, that was very much about how we, as students, paying a huge fee, uh, some of us trying to fund it by ourselves, taking big loans or applying for grants, um, what we wanted to do basically with our education um, and how we were critically um, thinking about the way we would want to practice. And I think at the end of the day, as a student, to be aware of um, um, almost as an entrepreneur what one would want to do with the education, not just sitting on a train taking you somewhere, but uh, really seeking out people in the network of an institution, um, being able to create the opportunities for oneself that one would want to have within, within an institution. Looking at education in that way, for me, has been quite productive because then it really becomes this framework, a lot of opportunities to really engage with very, very high-level interesting people in different sectors and gradually grasp, let's say, different corners of a discipline that is hard to speak of as maybe a unified discipline. Uh, so for me, I think an educational institution is a space that very much is a productive place for doubt, where you are sheltered in some way, in maybe a provocative way you are sheltered, um, and you also afforded maybe much more doubt than you would be on the other side as a practitioner. Um, and being in this space of doubt, uh, you're also granted to be very curious, um, to try to understand the relationships that are changing between public bodies, between uh, individuals running an architectural practice, between planners, and between different types of clients, and in that space to try and understand how one can start to procure projects in different ways, maybe not just enter into competitions where it's kind of a winner-takes-all game. Um, um, and the series that we have tried to, uh, that we have had at the AA has tried to encourage the debate on rethinking clients, and ways to form alliances. So um, while there's a shrinking public sector sponsoring architectural well, practice, and as Harriet said, um, fewer architects will maybe today work in the, in the public branch, even though there are brilliant initiatives like public practice that is trying to, to reintroduce architects to um, a public sector um, and to planning. Um, to form alliances that are not necessarily formalized within an, uh, the economy of an office, um, but where one can acknowledge that um, as, an, as an architect, one can benefit from the knowledge maybe of 
different public bodies uh, or people working in the public sector, even though the funding might not accompany um, that knowledge sharing. And at the same time, I think, I mean, everything one would need to approach with some sort of critical mind. So I don't think it's about trust. I think it's about opportunity to speak to people that have um, valid experience within a particular strain. Um, and then the last event that we did uh, was on affording risk. So that was very much speaking to how one can um, think about ways to procure a project and an architectural project and actually just take agency. I mean, I don't think that we should go into architecture as students um, whining about the opportunities that we don't have. I think it's very much about understanding that we have a lot of opportunities, we just need to create them. And an institution like the AA is fantastic in the sense that there's no recipe, there's no um, comfort in just going with a unit and going with a certain mindset. You're constantly challenged in that space of the school to think about and reevaluate how you can make a um, contribution uh, to society as an architect and how you would want to set up your practice. I noticed over there, cordially, you had your hand up. Did you want to respond? I think we're sitting in this bubble, in this ecosystem. I think we more or less all agree. And that I do understand Kevin's point, or, you know, there's so many huge pressing issues in the world at the moment, and, you know, the emergency, and the, that we might, none of us might be here in 20 years' time. And then what can we do, like what Jeremy was saying, that, you know, that profession and education are very similar in a negative way, but, you know, can we, you know, how can we as profession and education, what, what can we do about the, the really big issues? Maybe not much, but maybe that kind of attitude helps, or, you know, can we come up with a plan tonight of what we can do? Don't know. I don't know the answers. We have another. I just wanted to pick up on something Jeremy said about the RIBA's uh, commitment to ethics and sustainability. Well, Jeremy, why don't you... Um, oh, was this one over there? Yep. Hello. Yeah. Uh, well, we're from Centre St. Martins, or we were from Centre St. Martins. And I think... Um, well, yes, yeah, so I left... <laughs> He's not a student. Um, so, uh, we were at Centre St. Martins, and I think although the uh, course there isn't perfect by any uh, measures, but it's also trying to push something, you know, through Jeremy and Andreas and um, Mel who work there. And I think the idea of this part-time course and the ability to work whilst you're there. And also pushing the idea of what an architect could do and what they should do. And uh, implementing that kind of the live project element. And as this uh, gentleman said here, creating your own opportunities. I think it's more like, um, it's less, it's, you're right, Kevin. Can you have a chat again? Sorry, Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. I'm going to. Yeah, you used to you used to encourage everyone that Bartlett to take the bull by the horns and do stuff, and you, I'm sure you still do that. I think maybe just there's a, there's a slightly wrong turn of phrase. Your point about agency, I think, was bang on. I really do, and I think I think um, it's it's it, having done a few of these Negroni talks um, o o over the year. Um, there was a point made at the Reba one where, you know, what's going to, who's going to do what in Reba and blah, blah, blah. And Hugh, Meir, Hugh Pierman made an actually good, good point about um, trying to give the chance for younger people or more diverse people to create a little bit more um, um, activeness and, or, or take more kind of um, um, agency in, 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 in their own responsibilities and so on. So I like that point, particularly on the opportunities, opportunities you have as a student, because I think you have to. I don't think you can get comfortable. And I think you're we're kind of reiterating the same point. And I know, I know Billy, this chap on the left, and you know, I think he's a great example of it, because he's getting in there and he's building things with his hand. 
and he gets, he, he gets injured from time to time, but he builds amazing stuff, yeah? And I think that's a wonderful thing. And whether or not they get into a capitalist system, Kevin, is not really the point. The point here, the point here is, the point here is about um, you giving, giving the chances, giving the chances for younger people to really do stuff. Um, what I see uh, going on here in many different levels is that I, I, I have the feeling that we all architects have these, um, I don't know, kind of leftovers from a moment when architects thought they were heroes and they could just solve everything, you know, and like the micro. We are not heroes, guys. I am not, I am not under no illusion that we can do something to solve the macro structural problems that are out there. Forget about it. I mean, you can have, you can be you with a big practice or like us as students. I am a student. That's what I am. Why I'm, I don't look like one, but I am. I am doing a PhD. And I think I consider myself because I write a lot and I read a lot and I do practice on the ground with different communities. I am a practitioner. So uh, what I think we can use uh, architecture for is to change in the micro scale of things. And, uh, and because of that, grand vision of the architect that, as that, pro, that, that problem solver per se, you know, with buildings, with beauty. Forget about that. What we can do is maybe exert some agency in a micro scale with the people we work with, talking more with them. Uh, I disagree completely that architects are, uh, are working for profit. <laughs> the amount of architects are, you know, like suffering there because they are not well paid and they continue to do their job and 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 and, and no one second uh, and and uh, for the rba what you asked uh, uh, i think what the institutions can do is actually take on what we seem to agree some of us here and in on paper change the definition of practice because from from what you asked us um, I was surprised to see some people that I know uh, uh, when they didn't raise their hand if, when you asked, are you a practitioner? a practitioner? Of course you are. I mean, who says that being a dean of a school is not to be a practitioner? I don't understand that at all. So that, we, we could start, start with things like that, I think. Just broken the curtain. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just on a really, like, I guess, mundane point to back up this guy about the CSM and what they do with uh, two days in practice whilst they're studying. And I just think that is a great way for us to talk about how architecture, practice, and education can get closer together and understand each other better. So we do that, uh, Fikes and Mellon Architects, small practice in Peckham. We've had uh, two years of a a student at CSM working two days a week is now full-time employed with us. We've got another one just uh, stopped working for us because he's going into his final summer period with the intense period of work, but he's going to come back. And we've got the third generation starting with us who's the third in the, in the row. And we, we just think this is a great way to get um, for us to get introduced to students and for them to get introduced to practice whilst they're studying. And I just think we've had a lot of kind of like heated debate about the differences between education and practice where we should really be talking about how do we bring them closer together not not say that I'm doing this over here and it's my thing and I'm doing this over here and making loads of profit can't we just get a bit of balance and the truth is always somewhere in the middle it's never at the extremes so I just wanted to hear what some of the people thought about that interesting to um, think about uh, Timothy Morton, what he's been writing, um, and maybe it's kind of like a Nietzschean thing that we're kind of at the end of the world, we're kind of at an end of an era of, um, I don't know, like maybe there was this, we see it as this golden age, but maybe when we see all the problems that are happening now, we kind of realize that it's always been like that, and maybe 
that golden age was kind of false or propped up. Uh, um, so yeah, I think it's maybe like a Nietzschean kind of moment where what we took to be guiding our actions was never there in the first place. And yeah. Thank you. Um, I think I'd like to take it back to some yeah, of well. our kind of spe initial speakers. So maybe Jeremy answer. would like to kind of chip in and respond to some of the points that have been made. I'm turning my back. In answer to your question about the RIPA, I, I, I'm not romantic about the RIPA. It's not suddenly going to change. But if you take the mood in the room, what, what people have said about agency, about micro-working, et cetera, et cetera, then the mood has to come from you, not from establishment people from me about how to change things. And that, that some of the conversation that's happened is classic old modernist pedagogy about I have a certain way of believing in the world and I'm going to dominate. It's teaching primary schools, you know, architecture and GCSE and stuff, you know, because a lot of people haven't even heard of architecture, do you know what I mean? And then they go to university and they're told about architecture, but, you know, they could um, teach it at a younger level. Why isn't, there a, why isn't it taught in the schools? I don't, I, I don't believe it is. Maybe times have changed, do you know what I mean? And... I don't know if angry man over there has got anything to say about that. But I think that's a good idea. Sure. Just, well, <clears throat> I mean, not that we teach in the schools, but the AA has been having, for many years, way before I got there, a program that is called Little Architects. And actually, we are going to primary schools, giving specific classes that are trying to uh, uh, work with the curriculum that they are developing within other, uh, like, core curriculums, through the entire UK, and so... No, but, but what I think that does, what that initiative does, it actually makes the schools realize of the power of introducing design and, and thinking about the city as a design space at early age. We would love to be able to get into the government and be able to establish some structural change, but I think many of us can in a certain way, donate our time and participate in civic initiatives that try to actually bring design, not only to children, but also to our neighborhoods and in ways that actually take us outside of our professional institutionalized boundaries. And I think that that's something that, that many organizations, I mean, this is organized by an institution that is really trying to bring architecture outside of its shelf, no? Um, but maybe one of the things that I wanted to mention um, or to add into this, uh, one of the new initiatives that we are bringing at the AA is, uh, is trying to respond to many of these questions about practice. Um, we are creating a, a, the AA residence that is an incubator space for research projects that cannot exist within the pedagogical environment and cannot survive within the space of practice that would benefit from actually being associated with, uh, with a school that has certain academic resources. And if you want a, a kind of historical baggage and a series of individuals researching certain areas, but more importantly, is a place to actually produce experiments about what it means to practice today. So trying to produce a space uh, uh, for people to actually take some risks, I think that's probably one of the most important uh, contributions that we can do as institutions that throughout history we have tried to understand what is our role in, in allowing students, meaning young people, it's not so much about the students, it's about youth, it's about understanding that people that come uh, behind us actually are going to shape that uh, space ahead of us and, and to be able to provide a space for it I think is one of the most important tasks. So within the school even if we actually are producing degrees and now we are trying to think about what it means to produce a master on business and architecture and understand the most pragmatic and specific matters of fact so that we can learn the rules to change the rules at the same time we are also trying to produce new playgrounds for that space of the redefinition of practice itself. So um, 
from the little architect to the space of practice. You know, how do we as the institutions in this case try to, to offer a space? This is a, is a conversation with the students, but also with members and with people that suddenly say, you know, the AA could do that. And I think this is, for me, what is very important. It's not to think that the AA is there, or that Central St. Martins is there, or that, that the school... No, we are all in the same. We are all here on this together. The fact that we like to point bullets to people who practice, or... No. I mean, we are as dumb <laughs> as to actually start shooting to ourselves, when in fact, what we need to do is to understand the strength that we have, and be able to slowly move... In, in directions that actually allow us to be more effective, to actually put some of the ideas that we believe are important forward. Otherwise, then we are actually choosing the wrong enemies. No, we are choosing the wrong targets. We can actually self-engrandize ourselves by having this kind of loud voice and scream uh, without really making much sense. But what I think is very important is to make sure that we are precise in identifying who are our enemies and what is the target and what is that that we really want to change. Harriet. Um, thanks. Just thinking about the RBA, I'm reminded one of my favorite RBA statistics is that 66% of young people graduating from architecture in this country will never register as architects. So I kind of wonder what we're all fighting about, really, um, whether or not um, we're actually gonna, it's even a relevant debate. Another really important statistic, and I'm all about data, is that the Bank of England thinks that about a third of the British workforce will be replaced by automation within the next 10 years. And the US um, Department of Labor thinks that 85% of the jobs we'll be doing within the next 30 years haven't been invented yet. So I think we're all resting on an assumption that architecture will in any way survive or even remain relevant. And I think the only way that it can remain relevant, if we're willing, quite frankly, and Ava's completely right, to work together to not look at the divisions between us, but look to see what the potential is of the architectural skill set to do something meaningful. And if that means confronting the structures within society that we find so deeply problematic, then that's what we should do. No, you can't, Kevin, because I'm, I have to finish yet. So what I want to say is, my parents um, were very poor. Both of them left school at 14 with no qualifications. I never do this biography bullshit, by the way, but I'm feeling pretty pissed off, so I'm going to say it. Um, for me, none of them, they didn't go to... They didn't go to university. They didn't go to university. They didn't finish school. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I took out a debt to do it, but I was subsidised, and I did all kinds of dodgy jobs, 30 hours a week throughout my entire BA, to pay my way through school. I've never, ever signed on for benefits. I've never claimed anything off anyone. I've been completely self-sufficient. I lived in a council flat growing up. Education is, in my view, a transformative project. It can change your life. And so when people think that it's this broken thing, I'm sorry, but I'm not having any of that. That's all. Thank you. Thanks, Harriet. I think you raised some very good points and... I think kind of we're speaking in this room here as if we're like enemies and it's kind of for and against, but we're all, we should all be fighting for the same thing. You know, I think kind of architecture students have just come up with a really great thing of um, the architects declare uh, and kind of the, the architecture student movement also coming up with their own kind of thing against um, kind of traditional forms of uh, teaching and kind of incorporating sustainability and, and it's, and it's the students coming together and doing that from the bottom up and forcing their universities to kind of move through change. Um, and I think we need a lot more of that and we need a lot more working together rather than arguing against each other. Um, so, John, do you want to add anything to that being the kind of practitioner in the room here? Uh, I can try. I mean, I think some of the things um, that, that our um, colleague was saying about working together is really important. I think also Ava said, learn the rules to break the rules. I think that's not just true of, sorry, I'm fading in now, it's the mic, it's not my uh, voice box, but I think learn the rules to break the rules. I think that's got to do with um, everything. The point I was trying to make earlier about the, the difficulty of some of the master's education, and you see this very specific output, but you know, maybe there are 
the governmental rules, the politics, the social position that we work in. You need to learn the rules to break the rules. And I think Harriet said much the same thing. I mean, I think, I think we are all in the same room here. Uh, and I think we're all trying to push towards something where maybe we can remain relevant. And maybe our, our profession, I mean, AI is, is, is slightly terrifying. I think there was a really interesting debate not that long ago, about 10 years ago, when somebody asked, um, you know, well, who's, who's going to lose their jobs? And I said, well, you know, this is going to lose a job, yeah, but, no, but no truck drivers are going to lose their jobs. You know, we all know now there's about 250,000 truck drivers in North America going to lose their jobs. Um, is, is design, can that become part of AI? Are we still relevant? Uh, and I think in order to continue with that, we need to learn the rules so that we can break the rules. And architecture can do that more than most professions, I would like to think. Um, so, yeah, that's my piece. Thank you. Um, I think Russell also wanted to say something. So can I pass this mic that way? I think we need to remember that uh, it's angry old white men that got us into this fucking mess in the first place. So maybe we should spend a little bit less time to be, uh, listening to them. Um, I, I wonder whether the proposition should be less about moving education towards the, um, uh, to, to, towards the profession and actually more about moving the profession towards education. We need to scrap part one, part two, uh, part two and part three. It's an anachronism and no longer reflects... Uh, the way that we, uh, uh, the way that the, the, the architecture is moving as a as a, as a, as a profession, as a as a discipline. So I would suggest, you know, we, we, let's not talk about reforming the education system. Let's deconstruct the entire thing. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know how we do that, but the RBA needs to play a part in this. Um, we we cannot continue in this model of, you know, the the, lo the, the, the sort of lone genius architect that no longer exists. Uh, people need to be fully recognised for all of the work they do. And we need to reflect the fact that, that, that we all get together. We do uh, have a collaborative environment these days. We can all get together and work on projects, go and work on different projects. That's a much healthier model of practice that we need to, we need to move towards. And I think that, that the public sector has a huge part to play in this because the public sector is obsessed with risk and not with opportunity, and that's, that's where we need to start. Thanks, Russell. Good point. Um, Harriet, you were nodding. Do you want to respond to that or oh, agreeing? <laughs> um, I guess picking up on your point is actually um, one of the points that Harriet made earlier was that kind of architects originally thought they were going to be working in the public sector, but mainly that is not the case now. And there's this kind of ideological way of thinking. And how do we change education for that as well? There's also a hand up over there, so pass that. So, um, we're students that have literally just handed in our final year projects at the Bartlett, and the problem is we, it feels like most people feel like they've come to the end of the exciting part of their careers. You have. <laughs> Which is great. And everyone, everyone is, really wants to do, um, you know, learn in order to break the rules, but most people, I've got 85,000 pounds of debt now, and you just need a job. Then what's on offer in the UK market at the moment seems, everything seems really similar. Everything, most of the practices in the UK that employ a certain number of, a certain number of uh, part twos do a very similar thing. And then when you look ab abroad at either Asia or the USA, there's a, I don't know whether it's because of legislation or whether it's because of regulation or just the, the client market is different, but there's a huge range of projects and different styles of architecture and more sort of investigatory styles of architecture happening there. So the fact that only 60% of people register, it's really tempting to just move abroad. Only 33% of people register, so 67% don't register. So it's just tempting to move to a different market where there's um, a larger range of things to sort of start working on or start trying to do something creative with afterwards. Chris, I saw you shaking your head and you just <laughs> set up a kind of, recently set up a new practice. So do you want to respond to that yeah, student? I spent this afternoon in car park, so you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think there is, there's a lot of diversity in what practice in the UK produces. Don't, don't think there's not. It's just that we also have a controlled view of, of what we see 
the press aren't necessarily an enemy in that case. We seem to be very confrontational this evening, but there is there is a fashion movement in architecture that's unavoidable. So look around the corners and you'll find practices that are doing different things. I think diversity in practice is an important point that we don't all do architecture in the traditional sense. Uh, and the qualification that most of the people in this room have is actually incredibly flexible. Uh, as long as you drop the word architect and just talk about the skills that you've gained uh, and, and labor those when you're talking to your potential employees in anywhere from national or, or, or global government and leadership into, into financial institutions, wherever. But our, our skill sets are hugely uh, flexible and portable. Uh, but yeah, if you stick to a traditional model, it can leave you standing on a day like today in a car park of a hospital in Bromley. Um, I, I think that was quite a, almost a good point to end on, if you move away from the car park part and go for the kind of looking at the different kind of breadth of practice in the UK and the kind of future as students. There's kind of a great wealth of places you can go. Um, but I think we all kind of need a drink and we should just have this conversation together and not fighting each other in different corners. Um, so I'd like to kind of just wrap up and say um, thanks to Rob and Bobby for organizing this and putting this together. And also thanks to the guys at Fourth Space and thanks to Ombra for making amazing Negronis and beautiful pasta. Uh, and thanks to you all for coming. So thanks to our speakers. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thank you.